Hello folks, how are you doing? Uh, Edith here. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of my weekly podcast, Soundtracking. My weekly dive into a creative mind or two about the wonderful and beautiful world of film, music, TV. And thank you very much for the lovely comments over the past couple of weeks as well, uh, including the likes of uh, Charlie Brooker, Wes Anderson, and quite a lot of people as well getting in touch because they got round to watching the final episode of Silo, which stars the phenomenal Rebecca Ferguson. And it was scored by Adley Overson, who was a guest a couple of weeks ago. And if, like me, you thoroughly enjoyed that series, the last episode blew my mind. But anyway, uh, on to this week's episode, which I'm very excited to share with you. Oh, I just enjoy this man's company so, 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 so much. I actually saw him a couple of months back at the sort of Disney Expo enormous event that went on Excel. You heard me wanging on about that. I got to host an Andor panel. But I saw James because it was announced that he was Mr. James Mangold, by the way. Uh, it was announced that he was taking the helm of this almost like Jedi prequel film. One of the new films that was announced, which was basically the origin story of the Jedi. And I can't think of anyone better to do it. I love James Mangold. And so I am so delighted to welcome him back to Soundtracking to discuss Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I have a real personal connection with this character in that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was the first film that I got to choose to go and see at the cinema with my mates where my mum kind of bought tickets for a, a little crowd of us and she sat somewhere else and kind of left us to it. So I just have such an affiliation with this character and with these stories and you know it's that Spielberg thing as well. It was that Spielberg world that I was in and just couldn't help but kind of be excited about whatever it was next that he was going to be throwing our way. and. I can't think of anyone better than James to wrap up this story and this character because for me, listen, I think too many people go into to cinemas with preconceptions. And I think that one of the great things about cinema is that the whole idea of it is that you go into this beautiful and wonderful space and you leave everything at the door. And that includes what other people tell you what to think about films. And I think that there's too much... I almost think there's too many people telling you what to think about things in the world at the minute. And it will always be one of the many things that I love about cinema is the escape and is the idea of a filmmaker, a storyteller and a huge bunch of creative individuals, whether that be the sound recorders, the composer, the costume designer, the grip, whoever it is, but as a collective taking you away on a journey. And that is exactly what The Dial of Destiny does to me. It fulfills all those things that you want and expect from an Indiana Jones film, the adventure, the brilliant kind of comedic tone. But then what James Mangold does brilliantly through his script writing and his directing is that he's about character and he's about character study and he's about telling that character's story. And the story of this character is about the passing of time. It's about him getting older. It's about what he would have done different. It's about what he looks back on and regrets it. It's about what he looks back on and wishes he'd done differently. And James manages to marry that with everything you expect from an Indiana Jones film. So I love this. I absolutely was totally 110% on board with it. And of course, 
It's scored by John Williams, who returns to the franchise to provide the score. And listen, we're going to have plenty of his music to enjoy shortly. But first, a little word from our friends at View. As I've said, Dial of Destiny is out now nationwide, the fifth film in the series. 15 years since the last one. And this is a film, the example of a film that was made, made for the big screen. So why not get along to view for the ultimate seat, screen and sound, all of which contribute to how Indiana Jones was meant to be seen and enjoyed. And you also get it for good value with tickets available every day, every film, every screening from £4.99 at many of View's venues when booked online. So for more information, just head to myview.com. And so to James and John's score. And we'll begin with an extract from his prologue. James, Edith, how so are great you? to see you again. Uh, as uh, always. It was so lovely to almost kind of get a little uh, recce with you last night <laughs> <laughs> on the premiere on the red carpet because I, I, didn't re- I didn't know about your history with this film in terms of being a 17-year-old and going to the cinema on opening day. And just that full circle, you're there with us all on how this film and this character emotionally no, I've been. He's been a, a factor in my life, and and these filmmakers who I got to collaborate with on this movie have been, in a way, whispering in my ear creatively all my life. You know, I, I most of them I didn't know John. I didn't really know. I'd met Stephen a couple times, but I didn't know him, the or George and Harrison. I worked with a little, but the reality is when you work together, mm-hmm. that's how you get to know each other. That yeah. is how we how so often we really get to know what people are made of and who they are and this film was such a magnificent opportunity personally for Mm. me separate from all the product and the finished thing and everything else just you know there's sometimes just what do you get out of it and what I got out of it was to dance and collaborate with my heroes of my life. I actually cried last night trying to Harrison when he left I had a little moment because it's kind of like you say I mean that's you're speaking for all of us in that because this was my first film that I chose to go to the cinema see Temple of Doom was for me. And he's one of our, 
You know, it's it, we can use all these words, and they've gotten so beaten to death. Icon, legendary, da da da, because everything now um, in yeah. all media is yeah, the yeah, iconic, yeah. blah blah blah, <laughs> the legendary, <laughs> ding dong, and you're. <laughs> but he's also been our father and our boyfriend, or our our, our husband, or our our hero all our lives. Yeah. And what does that mean? Separate from all the kind of biggest, best, iconic, legendary, it means he's been speaking with us and setting an example to us about the kind of men or, or people we can be um, in all the roles he's played. Yeah. Um, and what I think is so moving about what Harrison has done all his life is that he's never hesitated, perhaps because it's so much a part of who he is, to play the rogue, to play someone who isn't perfect. You know, so many of our heroes in the age of comic book heroes, but in so many ways we ask a kind of perfection of them, and he's never been interested in that. He likes playing characters who have issues yeah. themselves, yet are heroes. And, uh, and, and I think that's what makes his work so enduring and so strong for all of us mm -hmm. as, a, as a kind of collective memory of growing up and the kind of person we want to be. Before we get on to the music, which, I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about in this, but how did, did your journey with this start in terms of Kathleen and Frank and Harrison? Was it, did they Harrison come Harrison and Kathy came to me and then Stephen wanted to meet with me and discuss the same thing and... In each of the meetings, I was just open to hearing what everyone had to say, but I was yeah. a little hesitant. I was, of course, honored and uh, kind of struck down by what was the nature of what was coming to my doorstep. But I was probably quite sensibly a little hesitant. First of all, I wanted, I, I wanted to read what existed yeah. um, in script because I kind of, because that's in the end what what I have to work with. And when I did, I saw that I didn't think they were there yet. And when it came to me, they were also like, and we need the movie starting production in three and a half months. And I was Whoa. like, so my initial answer was no, um, actually. It was, or a conditional no, which is that I need a lot more time. Yeah. Um, because what I don't want to do and what happens too often with blockbuster movies is you're not making a movie. You're actually making a date, meaning making a release date. Someone yeah, yeah, put yeah, yeah, a yeah. marker down on you know, July 4th, 2027, yeah. and now we need to make a movie to go on our marker. <laughs> and, the, and the reality is nothing good is going to necessarily come of that yeah. um, way of working, um, although it's become a kind of way of working in show business. But the, for me, nothing good was going to come out of setting a date for something I didn't have. So they came back to me a few weeks later and and i think they had to talk to you know the even higher powers that determine these calendars and <laughs> and found a year to push it off so that myself i kind of penciled out a treatment and then jez and john henry butterworth who had worked with me on lamont 66 came on and we all worked on the script through the start of the whole pandemic and then um and then launched into production in the midst of the whole pandemic. And, um, but, but it was for me, that's how it came to me. And my initial reaction was, of course, one of incredible honor, but also a sense that you're pinch hitting for one of the greatest filmmakers of all time in one of the most beloved stories of all time. Mm -hmm. And so I had to be aware that there were a lot of landmines in the field I was going to run across. 
I am a bit of a daredevil myself in terms of at least movies. And I mean, you know, I make a lot of different kinds of movies. So I I like to keep throwing myself into something a little bewildering and new each time. But the overwhelming feeling I had when we talk about that 17-year-old on the floor of his bedroom, you know, listening to John Williams records as he storyboards his next movie was that I couldn't. Telling them I didn't have enough time was about as close as I could come to saying no. Because the idea, as I said, working with people is how you get to know them. And I really wanted to know Stephen and George and Kathy and Harrison and John Williams. I really wanted it. Yeah. I really wanted, um, because we all have our heroes, but there's this moment where you go, oh my God, I get to work with them and know who they are. Yeah. And I can't say, um, there were many joys making this movie and it was one of the great experiences of my life. Spending a year living in this wonderful country, um, made me all only dream to come back as soon as possible. But the, but those relationships are a treasure to me. Just before we get to Mr. Williams, the needle drops as well. There's some great choices of of needle drops in this as well. We've got the Beatles, we've got Bowie in there as well. And can I also just give you a huge Scottish round of applause for the bagpipes, sir? Well, those were those are Scottish bagpipes. That was like I was like I nearly stood up. I'm like <laughs> I'm a big bagpipe fan Good. since Copland, and the uh, um, they are one of the great sounds of. Oh, it's rising. Of New York and even The Godfather and mm. all those Lamette cop films of the of the seventies and the um but they're also obviously um one of the great sounds <laughs> of Scotland. And the uh Yes. And the Beatles were interesting because I actually I mean when I when I first penciled out my my own treatment of what this movie was going to be, I actually was calling it Indiana Jones and the Magical Mystery Tour. And, uh, <laughs> I love that. And because to me, there was this whole aspect of just taking a 70-year-old Indiana Jones and in a period of, of the Beatles and psychedelia and the world changing and moon landings and kind of what I imagined this movie could be, in some way, it had to take advantage of the time we were in. Yeah. I thought if there was anything that was a was an issue with Chris, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, it was that I felt like they were all, and it was very educational for me, trying to make a movie like the first three in the fourth one. But the only thing that had changed in the fourth movie that was no longer true of the first three was the first one no, no longer taking place in a golden age period of cinema. Not to get too deep on you technically or philosophically, but the first three movies take place in the 30s and 40s. The 30s and the 40s is the period of golden age cinema. It's the period of movie scores sounding like John's music, you know, um, uh, Korngold, Rosa, et al. Um, so it's, it's the great studio sets with hard key lighting, with, with incredible frames, single camera shot, very masterful storytelling, powerful foreground, deep focus action. A mise-en-scene is really, is really complex in those movies. And Stephen and George were lifting all of that and doing a tribute to all of that in those first three movies. But when you take the same storyline and aesthetic and you suddenly move into the fifties, what's changed? modernism, how movies are made, the music we are listening to, Mm. the culture of the world. You can't just make a kind of 
noir golden age kind of Hollywood picture with an orchestral score mm -hmm. in 1956, the year of the Wild One and Elvis Presley, and 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 you know it's all different. Yeah, and it causes this dissonance between the outward aesthetics of the movie and the place it's in, which never existed in the first three movies. They were in total harmony. The period of time, the fedora, all of it, the whip, the the villains all belonged in the milieu of the 30s and 40s. So when I came on this movie, one of the things I was thinking about, and it was both on a musical level and on, on aesthetics and tone, was how do you deal with this and how most aggressively can you deal with this kind of, this dissonance of, place and time, and yet trying to carry forward the aesthetics of a kind of golden age film into it. I mean, there was, there's, when we see, when we have that kind of flashback to Young Indy, there's one shot where that, that kind of beautiful kind of flash of light on his face at one point, and it, yeah. and it took my breath away, because it's kind of like, it's such a, a visual kind of almost like It's a gratitude. signature of who he is, yeah. yes. And so my, my only, my only in grasping at creative straws in my bewilderment after taking this job was, <laughs> was, um, was the idea of opening the film in the forties and giving everyone a kind of very full meal of what it is they missed about those original films. Mm -hmm. And in a way to say, you know, here's our best shot at doing this the way they did it way back when. Yeah. Although obviously we're using a lot of technology that they didn't have back then, but they had the advantage of a 35-year-old Harrison uh, and, <laughs> and 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 a time they weren't making those movies in a pandemic, and it was a crazier, more wonderful time for movies in some ways, where things were just more practical and um, crazy in the world. When you do that opening sequence in the in the 40s at the end of the war and see young Harrison. With and you know, speaking even shifting into music, my my idea when I first started talking with John was like, this is where you just let the horses out of the barn. You just do you do John Williams, what everyone's you just you just score this thing wall to wall, yeah, full orchestra blasting away. this cut to 1969. And what I thought is almost the best way to say how times had changed for Indy would be to give you this adrenaline rush of the way it was, and then to hit you with the way it is. Yeah. And so you can see the difference. And music's such a great way of doing that as well. It just drops you in that. It is. And one of the first things John and I talked about, because it was the first puzzles, was, and I said to him, I don't think we'll hear Indy's theme again for a couple reels, at least. You know, I think I said to John... Uh, you Is know, that hard to say to him? No. He okay. loves... <laughs> he loves the... First of all, he's probably anxious to write something other than dum-dum-dum. But the, uh, but, the, but the reality was that 
that Indy's lost his mojo when we find him in 1969. And in a sense, the greatest way to communicate someone's lost their mojo is just, I can't find my theme. Where did it go? You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, so... We land in 1969, and, uh, you know, my first conversations with John, I said, so I think we should just be in a kind of, you know, three days of the condor, like 70s picture. And he goes, I can do that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was a 70s composer, Jim. And, uh, and um, uh, so, in a way, the movie scoring and tonally shifts 180 degrees after that cut to 1969. The music changes. The world changes. Indy's age changes by oh, 40 years. Yeah. And um, and I wanted the audience to feel that U-turn in every way. Was John always coming with this? Was he always this part of the journey? Did you know You that? never know anything but the, the, <laughs> at all, Edith, in life. But the, but you can hope. Yes, okay. well, that was my hope. And when Kathy Kennedy put me in touch with John and we talked for the first time, we seemed to hit it off. I mean, he's also a disarmingly charming and lovely man. Um, uh, and also surprising in the sense that all the maestro, black outfit, baton, orchestra thing makes you think that you're going to be somehow dealing with some kind of stuffy character. And he is a jazz musician from Queens <laughs> who calls, hey, baby. Like, whenever I, if I call him, he's like, hey, baby. And I'm like, well, first of all, I'm 59. I love being baby. But the, uh, but also being called baby by John Williams is awesome. And But what I really mean is just he's incredibly charming. And he comes from a collaborative. I mean, he came up as a jazz pianist. I don't, you, you must know this, but that's him playing piano in the apartment. Um, the Jack Lemmon movie. That's him. He was a pian piano player in orchestras. Um, I think he's also the Breakfast at Tiffany's score. That's him playing piano. Um as part of the, you know, Henry Mancini or he's, and he came up as a piano player from, from just being a stu studio and session and jazz musician in the West Coast. So there's a disarmingly charming quality about John. And, um, and I've just gotten so lost telling the story. I don't know where I was starting. Um, I was just, I asked if you knew he was coming with, if oh, he was coming so, with it. Yeah. Thank you. So, <laughs> so no, I didn't, but when we first spoke, what is after me telling that whole little Thank moment? Because you. you could tell I'm in love with him, <laughs> um, and I am. I've never uh, met him, and I am. <laughs> yes, I mean he's just a, a gift to humanity. And um, but he told me, Jim, uh, I'm going to write a few themes. I'm I'm not sure I can do more than that. I mean, he's talking to me at that moment at 89 or 90 years of age, and I'm like, okay. But I figure, okay, I've got a hook in the fish, but I got to keep them. And, but I didn't really have to do anything. He loved the movie as it was coming together and he was watching dailies and all these things as they were coming. And so he started writing. The first thing we shot was the opening sequence in 1944. So he just started away on that. And then he also was really immediately enamored with Phoebe and, and her character yeah. in the movie. And he wrote this theme for her.
but he just continued to write over the last, well now year and a half, but really mainly the year we were working cutting the movie. He just never stopped writing in pencil on his piano until he had written over two hours of score in pencil on paper, no computers involved. And um, that's down to your script. What? That's down to your story and how it's, you've made this film. And it's also just down to there's nobody like that anymore who can sit down, can watch a scene. And I have to tell you, one of the most inspiring things was the first time I showed him the movie, he was in the cutting room, and I sat a little off to the side of him and just behind him. And um, so kind of my view was the back of his head in my movie. And the, and the whole film... You can't see me, but I'm leaning forward. He was leaned into the screen. And I'm watching him. And at this point, the movie was three hours and 25 minutes. And so John is just riveted to this Berlin Alexanderplatz length <laughs> Indiana Jones movie. And uh, and um, and except for one break in the middle that everyone, you know, uh, grabbed a sandwich and then dove back in, you know, there was nothing said. He was just, I could watch him just... I could watch from the back of his head the gears turning and him thinking about what he was going to do with this picture. And he really didn't need to say much. And he went away and just started writing. And wow. um, he is one like there are no others. It's the ability to, you know, the tone of the film is so brilliant because, you know, everything from that line of you should have stayed out of Poland, you know, the kind of, there's this, the tone of the film is fantastic. And the way that he's able to, be a companion for all of that, all of that. Who could do that nowadays? You know, my my big thing when we cast Phoebe, who was all I wanted. I mean, when I took the movie, I was like, you can you move it a year? And the other thing is, can you get Phoebe Waller-Bridge? Wow. Because I, I really wanted someone fresh for the film. Yeah. And I just watched, I was probably at this moment, they came to me. I was in the middle of the second season of Fleabag. Fleabag. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, the show is great. Amazing. But the other thing that was amazing watching the show was just the arrival of this incredible artistic voice who just blew me away and also to me represented not only an absolute voice of the present, but she was and is a, a, just a complete creative voice, not only a, a creative voice of the present, but also a kind of connection to the great women actresses of the past. I immediately watching her in Fleabag, however old-fashioned this makes me, thought of Kate Hepburn or Barbara Stanwyck or these kind of empowered young women in these 30s and 40s films that are, you know, and immediately for our movie, I told Phoebe this, I saw her as Barbara Stanwyck in Preston Sturgis's Lady Eve, where she's a card shark and a con lady and kind of refuses at all costs to fall in love with Henry Fonda as she's fleecing him. But of course we know she's got a heart in there mm -hmm. and we love her. And we're also charmed by her in that we'd probably let her take all our money too, um, <laughs> just to be around her. And, and that's in a way how I feel about Phoebe. I think she is, she's a scoundrel, but you absolutely adore her. Mm -hmm. And um, those unique contradictions and qualities were things that I think also really inspired John. And so one of the first things he did was kind of write this golden age haunting and beautiful theme for her, which, which, you never quite hear in the full sweet version in the movie because we never have a place to put that. He did that for the album. But what he did when he made that sweet was he also established something that he mines 
throughout much yeah. of the movie, and especially during much of the film when Indy's lost his theme. Um, uh, that's what's driving us musically forward. When he, two things, one's one that I was amazed and loved, loved hearing someone talk about was that, so I mean, I'm assuming that he does, did the same with this because this is a new film, but obviously there are existing themes and motifs that you want to be part of this, but you want to make them relevant to this story and this journey. And then there are moments in the film where there's a piece at the end where a character returns and the theme for that character Returns. Returns. And I was broken at that point. And it was the music carrying me through that. It's actually the second <sighs> time you hear that theme in the movie. Yes, it is. You're yes. absolutely right. But the um, but I understand why. Because mm. um, the, there's a visual element to it as well. Yeah. It? But yeah. No, no, but you hear it earlier when when at a moment, a, a, less, a less authoritative version, when Harrison is talking about yeah. this character. and the But for me... The logic of that was just something we worked out in the cutting room. I mean, honestly, some of that we were, you know, we had the advantage that we had um, five pictures worth of uh, four pictures worth of, of John Williams music to temp and play with as we cut. And also, and it's forever to my chagrin, you know, they release these albums, at least the initial release that are like, you know, 10 or 11 tracks of John's music. But they're always in these kind of sweet versions. I always... It, and then later, 20 years later, they released the kind of the full, the full La La Land yeah. records, kind <laughs> yeah. of 96 Q. Those are the things you got to have. Because, Four pieces of vinyl, please. Yeah. Because they're they're Yes. And they're they're from because they have all this incidental stuff he does that's just brilliant. And um, and and that we used, obviously, kind of charting out how the movie would work. And, and then John used as a kind of template or would suggest other things and invert our way of thinking about them. But we we blocked it out. And the one thing we always had there from the very beginning was that theme. And does he like to kind of then, you know, thinking about going, yeah, we, you know, with indie theme, for example, going, reworking it and reimagining it for this film, but it's still yes. having the essence of that. But it's also, or- it's also this kind of interesting way that, that I, uh, he's so inviting of the push and pull creatively that, that uh, John Williams I'm talking about is, um, that he wants, he doesn't mind at all. He has his ideas and then you have yours and then he, he's really flexible. He loves the dialogue, not unlike working with wonderful actors. You know, all my life I've discovered that the most amazing actors I've worked with love to be directed. Yeah. You know, it was my, my second movie, Bob De Niro said to me, you know, I need a director. Don't ever not talk to me. Don't ever be shy. Tell me what you want. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Even tell me while I'm shooting, during the scene. Just yell out to me what you need, but talk to me. And and I've remembered that all my life. And and it's always the less experienced actors who are like, oh, man, you're screwing up my head. Don't talk to me. And the ones who are like, please give me. And with John, that was always the case. He would be, even with a full orchestra standing, I'd come bounding out to the podium. And I'd be like, uh, do you think? The, and, the, and the whole orchestra would be like, Whoa, who is this guy? And uh, and John be like, not a bad idea. Put a scratch through measure four, oboes, and blah, blah, blah. And then boom. And and either it worked or it didn't. But he, there was such a relaxation to what he was doing and how he was doing it. And honestly, usually, 
on movie scores, I hear some mock-up from a synth yeah. long before I ever get into a room with 300 players. Yeah. But that's not what John does. He writes in pencil. There is nothing to mock it up but to take 300 of the world's best musicians, put them in front of that paper, and have them play it. And so you end up giving notes with 12 French horns sitting patiently. What's it like and being in 45, you know, violinists, <laughs> yeah. et cetera, et cetera. What's it like being in that room? When for, what was it like for the first time it's, when you were in that room and he's there? You feel like you're in some EPK of some movie that you watched uh, <laughs> a lot. You feel like you're living in some kind of behind the scenes footage, only it's in first person and I'm the director. It's completely <laughs> weird, completely weird and thrilling. And then also just moving, you're sitting in the same stage. They recorded the score to The Wizard of Oz and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Singing in the Rain. And the walls haven't been painted since then. And you're hearing this music by a 91-year-old composer who is conducting his own orchestra, music that he's written by hand for this new movie. I can't say anything, but, but it's one of the highest moments of my life. James, your, your enthusiasm is so infectious and beautiful and to hear. And yours, Edith. It really, really is. Just before we run out of time, I mean, this is such a brilliant film and was a really emotional experience for me and I just loved everything about it. I can't wait to go with my kids to watch it at cinema as well. But also what's coming up for you is so exciting. You mentioned that you know you just hopped across from working with Timothy on this Dylan pick and we last spoke about Johnny Cash and the fantastic job that you, you did with that. What makes you make those choices about what's next? Finding a story that grabs me, and in this case, the story, a world that grabs me, yeah. first of all. And the world of New York in the early 60s, and a young Bob Dylan, you know, at 
17 years of age, arriving in town with 10 bucks in his pocket to go meet Woody Guthrie, who's dying in a hospital and uh, has hitchhiked his way across the country and somehow falls into the company of Pete Seeger. Well, not somehow. Pete was like a son to Woody and was always visiting him and ends up embraced into the folk scene of New York as a kind of vagabond guitarist and songwriter and within two years takes over that world and within another two years has eclipsed that world and has become a a worldwide sensation. And what was so interesting to me wasn't just the ascent of Bob Dylan, but the unique relationship of that community to Dylan's ascent. Um, Almost like Amadeus, there's a kind of quality by the end, by the time he's gone electric at Newport in 1965, People are calling him Judas, and he's a traitor to the people he came up with. It's a really interesting, especially now, even now, the way we become so tribal about culture and music yeah. on the left and the right, and who's betraying who. Mm-hmm. And um, it's such a, a singular story about, um, you know, Bob, who I've gotten to meet working on, on the script for this um, right. and spend time with, you know. He, always, he wanted to be Buddy Holly was the first thing he wanted to be. He wanted to have a band. And he, you know, when he came to New York, he was a broke guitarist. And the way to get work or a free burger was to play either on the sidewalk with your guitar or yeah. play in a little club on McDougal Street. But the idea of having the camaraderie, speaking of the camaraderie of making movies for, for Dylan, the camaraderie of a band was something he always dreamed about. Mm-hmm. So... For him, it's this interesting thing where the ascent into being a, a band performer on a stage instead of a solo acoustic act was just kind of a destiny he had always dreamed of, but was viewed by those in the folk community, which felt that the what a folk musician should be is yeah. a, a singular human alone with their instrument in front of a mic. He was betraying this kind of idea and how people who were so tight when it all began became so fractured by the end over these kinds of music bin in a record shop division. So, yeah. no, you belong in this bin. What are you doing in that bin? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it was really turned me on because it's um, it's also who, weirdly, I am. Like, what bin do I go in in the video rental store? Yeah. Like, I've made, All of them. Yeah, I've made a... I've, <laughs> it's the most self-destructive career of all time in the sense that I've made... I'm, I'm a lifesaver variety pack of candies, and um, but it's been an incredible journey. In one way, I really connected with Bob, but that's it's always the story, and as you can tell, that musical story is really riveting to me. And the idea of Timmy playing, oh my gosh, um, Bob at that age seemed like I had the guy and I had the story, and so you always are looking for that lightning in a bottle of the thing that's going to go in front of the lens that's going to make it special. And the idea behind the lens that makes the whole endeavor unique in some way. I can't wait to talk to you about it. Me too. Down the line. Yeah. Thanks, James. So My pleasure, to as Thank always. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much.
From the score to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, that's Gravicus from John Williams rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with James Mangold. My huge thanks to James for taking the time to talk to us. The final instalment of the Indie Saga is on general release now, so do get yourself along to your local view. Just head to myview.com for more information. If you want to hear my chat with James about Logan and Walk the Line, head to edithbowman.com where you'll also be able to hear my chat with none other than Mr. Steven Spielberg. I do pray that one day, hopefully, we might get the opportunity to chat with John Williams. I've got James on the case with that as well, so we can, uh, well, cross everything for me. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And do please spread the word on your socials and among your friends if you like what you hear. We are a very small uh, two-man show here at Soundtracking and we really do rely on you guys spreading the word if you like what you hear. So we would we'd really appreciate if you take the time. Join us next week for another episode of Soundtracking where I enthuse about the worlds of film, music and TV. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.